In July of 2009, a highly organized, successful wife and mother enjoys a relaxing retreat with her family at a campground in upstate New York. But by the end of that weekend, a decision was made that would change four families forever and absolutely baffle the world for years to come. How did this summer camping trip devolve into the demise of eight people? This is the case of Diane Schuler. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of Crime Cave. I'm Christy, and when this case hit the news back in 2009, I think it left most people in absolute shock. It's not a whodunit. There's not a question there. In this episode, we're going to try to untangle the why. This is the case of Diane Schuler. Diane Schuler was born on November 13, 1972, the youngest of four children in Floral Park, New York, the only girl. She had a tight group of friends with Diane standing out as the class clown. At nine years old, Diane's life immediately changed when her mother suddenly left the family. She was no longer just a kid. She was hoisted into a motherly role, being expected to take care of the cooking and the housework. As a young girl, she was basically the woman of the house. Diane struggled with her weight off and on, but did well in school and continued her reputation for being fun to be around and loudest in her class. She grew into a highly organized, powerful, and some would say tightly wound career woman. Although she had no experience dating, she eventually met Daniel Schuler when she was in her mid-twenties at a friend's wedding. Diane and Daniel married and had two children, a son they named Brian, and three years later, a daughter, Erin. While Danny worked nights as a security guard, Diane was the main breadwinner for the family and ran their household like a well-oiled machine. She handled all the bills, made all the decisions. In fact, Daniel's own mother described their dynamic as more like mother and son rather than wife and husband, saying Danny was like her oldest. Diane had climbed the ladder in her career, and by the summer of 2009, while the kids were still very young, Diane was director of credit, billing, and collections at Cablevision, earning over $100,000 a year. The Schulers owned a camper and often took the kids upstate to get away for the weekend. On Friday, July 24th of that year, they headed to their usual haunt, Hunter's Lake Campground in Parksville, New York, a little over two hours northwest of their home in West Babylon. But on this particular trip, they also brought along Diane's three nieces, her brother Warren's daughters, eight-year-old Emma, seven-year-old Allison, and five-year-old Kate. They documented their vacation with lots of pictures of the kids fishing, swimming, building campfires, and having fun in the game room. But all good things come to an end. By Sunday, July 26, 2009, it was time to head home. At 9 a.m., Emma called her dad and said that they had a great time and that they're looking forward to coming home. The plan was for Danny to take their family dog in the pickup truck, while Diane took the 2004 Ford Windstar borrowed from her brother Warren to transport all five children back home. At 9.30 on that beautiful July morning, 
The two vehicles made their way through the winding exit of the campground, saying a cheerful goodbye to Ann Scott, the campground's owner. When she leaned into the van to ask the kids if they had a good time, they excitedly yelled, Yeah, we're coming back! About 10 miles into their drive, Diane and the children stopped off at a McDonald's in the town of Liberty to get breakfast at 9.56. The kids enjoyed the play area for a little bit, and after a quick pit stop in the bathroom, they loaded up in the van again and hit the road. At 10.46 a.m., they pull into the Sunoco gas station, still in Liberty. Surveillance video shows Diane going in alone, quickly walking along the front of the store, briefly glancing at the aisles, and then walking back out. 51 minutes later, at 11.37 a.m., Diane calls her niece's mom, Jackie Hance, saying there was a lot of traffic and they were running late. At the same time Diane was reporting heavy traffic, other motorists on the New York Thruway were reporting a different series of events. Here's a timeline of what happened next. At 12 p.m., Diane drove along Interstate 87, changing lanes aggressively but very precisely, looking extremely intense and focused. The children's heads could be seen swaying back and forth as she abruptly changed lanes. At 12.30, Diane began tailgating the car in front of her, flashing her headlights, honking the horn incessantly, and straddling two lanes. She then drove on the shoulder of the road to pass them, eventually pulling over on the side of the highway, bending over outside the van as if she was about to be sick. At 12.55, a wrong number was dialed from Diane's phone. At 12.58, Jackie receives a call from Diane, but it was actually her worried eight-year-old daughter, Emma. Jackie listened intently as she explained, There's something wrong with Aunt Diane. She was having trouble seeing and she wasn't speaking clearly. Diane herself then got on the phone and said everything was fine. Jackie could hear the kids crying in the background, but Diane insisted they were just playing. The call ended abruptly two and a half minutes in. Warren called her back and told Diane to pull over and stay off the road. He was on his way and he would meet them shortly. Diane called him Danny instead of Warren. At 1.10 p.m., three wrong numbers were dialed from Diane's phone. At 1.15, Warren calls Diane again, but it goes to voicemail. She left her phone sitting on a guardrail at the Tappan Sea Bridge. By the time he arrived at their location, they were gone. At 1.33 p.m., 911 operators received several calls reporting a minivan driving the wrong way up an exit ramp on the Taconic State Parkway. One minute later, they received four more calls, this time reporting a similar van speeding down the parkway at 85 miles an hour in the wrong direction. It was Diane and the five children in the back. For 1.7 miles, The van barreled down the northbound lanes before colliding with a Chevy Trailblazer, which then hit a tracker. The van ricocheted off the highway and burst into flames. Eight people were killed in that collision. Diane, her daughter Erin, all three nieces, 
Emma, Kate, and Allison, and three men in the Chevy Trailblazer. 81-year-old Michael Bastardi and his 49-year-old son Guy were headed to a family dinner in Yorktown Heights and had brought along family friend, 74-year-old Daniel Longo. Miraculously, Brian was found alive underneath the girls. He suffered broken bones and a severe head injury that left him with ocular nerve palsy. The two passengers in the tracker received only minor injuries. The funeral for Diane and the girls was held three days later on July 29th. Warren spoke at the service, and he said this about his sister. We're grateful for the love and care that she showered upon our family, especially all of our children. On August 4, 2009, five days after the funeral, a news conference was held by the New York State Police and Westchester County Medical Examiner's Office. An autopsy revealed that Diane Schuler had a blood alcohol level of 0.19%, over twice the legal limit. Director of Toxicology Betsy Spratt also stated that high levels of THC were found in her system. Diane Schuler was drunk and high at the time of the crash. A large broken bottle of absolute vodka was found near the driver's side. So what happened here? What on earth would cause a successful career woman and doting mother to drive a van full of children while she was plastered out of her mind? HBO released a documentary called There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane 18 months after the crash. It primarily focused on Daniel Schuler's and Diane's sister-in-law, Jay Schuler's quest to find answers. Or rather, their insistence on living in a cloud of denial. They've spent years not only declaring that Diane was not drunk, but insisting that she wasn't even a drinker. Their efforts included hiring a private investigator to determine if the DNA submitted to the lab actually belonged to Diane exhuming her body to determine if a possible abscessed tooth may have somehow led to a stroke, and gaining access to her medical records to see if she may have had an undetected condition that caused her to think that a giant bottle of vodka was actually water. None of the results were what they wanted to hear. However, something that may have fueled the fire of their denial is that three people that interacted with Diane the morning of the crash the owner of the campground, the McDonald's employee, and the cashier at the Sunoco station, all stated that Diane seemed totally fine. But let me ask you, have any of you ever had too much to drink? There's always that moment where you go from fine to not fine. When did that happen for Diane? I submit it happened when she pulled over multiple times, acting as if she was about to vomit. How about when she began tailgating and honking excessively? In the convenience store video shortly before the crash, Diane is seen quickly surveying the layout of the store, contrary to the family's belief that she was looking for Advil to take care of some alleged dental issue. I think she was looking to see if they had a liquor section. I'm actually going to share what I think happened, and I welcome any of our listeners to chime in with thoughts. As a result of being abandoned by her mother and being expected to take on excessive amounts of responsibility at nine years old, I think Diane developed a few coping mechanisms. 
conveying control and perfectionism in her career and outwardly as a mother who has it all together. But I also believe that her emotional pain manifested itself in chronic binge eating and weight issues. Daniel was the only guy she ever dated, and she settled on him. With his lackluster energy and involvement in their household responsibilities, I believe Diane resented that she found herself in yet another situation where she was expected to do all the work. People keep secrets sometimes. It's not that unusual. I also don't think it's far-fetched to believe that she was an occasional binge drinker. It doesn't mean she was an alcoholic. It only takes once to cause a crash like that. So what happened during the camping trip? Did she finally get so fed up with her husband that she took a swig of vodka in the morning to take the edge off and couldn't stop? If she stashed the bottle of booze with her in the van, did she start pouring it into her orange juice or iced coffee from McDonald's? I'm not surprised it was a bottle of vodka that was found in the driver's seat. Vodka is known for not having a distinct odor, so it's hard to detect. Several eyewitnesses on the road stated Diane looked very calm and intent on going the wrong way down the highway. Did she finally hit an emotional breaking point where she made the decision to end her life and just didn't care who she took with her? It's been over 14 years, and this case is still debated about due to how absolutely unfathomable it is. But one thing is certain, despite all the denials, she had the means, motive, and opportunity. I can understand Diane's family's gut reaction and burning need for this not to be true. When a loved one is demonized after death, there's a tendency to try to turn them into a saint. But for the families of the victims, their continued denial is devastating and insulting. If nothing else, by acknowledging Diane's tragic choices, it could serve to warn others what not to do. While the loved ones of Michael and Guy Bastardi and Daniel Longo participated in the documentary, Jackie and Warren Hance, who lost all of their children in the crash, found a different way to honor their girls. They created the Hance Family Foundation, whose main purpose is to ensure healthy, happy, and safe children through innovative self-esteem educational programming. Their central project is called Beautiful Me, and it's a program designed to educate girls by promoting appreciation for their genuine qualities, accurate self-awareness, and the satisfaction of helping others. Jackie also wrote a book called I'll See You Again, focusing on her initial grief and her eventual reemergence into life. In 2011, Jackie and Warren were blessed with a new little girl. They named Casey Rose. And now for today's listener question. Okay, today's listener question is from Jackie. And she wants to know, what true crime shows am I currently watching? Lately, I've been getting into a show called American Monsters, and I really like how they begin each episode with all these different home movies, so you can't really tell who the criminal is. So I find that really intriguing. And when I don't have that on, I usually have Dateline on in the background at any given moment. So, you know, there's that. But definitely no shortage of really well-produced true crime shows out there. Thanks for your question, Jackie. 
Hey everybody, it's Ray the Roadie. And this is Hollywood Mike with the Rock and Roll Chicago Podcast, coming to you from the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet, Illinois, where once a week we are interviewing local musicians and singer-songwriters, and the podcast itself covers a wide range of topics, including, but not limited to, the history of rock and roll in Chicago, the current state of the scene, and the challenges and opportunities facing musicians today. So join us every Tuesday for a new exciting episode of the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Crime Cave has been brought to you by Fortress Defense Consultants, providing security consulting for educational institutions, corporate facilities, and houses of worship, as well as pepper spray, situational awareness, and defensive firearms training for police and private citizens. Find Fortress on the web at FortressDefense.com. Contact Fortress directly at 708-522-8060 or email them at info at FortressDefense.com. Avoid being the subject of a future episode of Crime Cave. Train with Fortress today. Until next time.